0: All right, I think we're in Acts today. Acts 1, 1 through 11. Yeah. Uh, Jesus taken up into heaven. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus uh, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And we're going to do a new response together. Lord, make our word our rule. Your spirit our teacher and your glory, our supreme concern, for the sake of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Now what? Have you ever asked that question before? Uh, perhaps you have been working towards some big goal in your life, or you've been planning for some adventurous trip, or you have been just working so hard toward this presentation you need to make, or, uh, or any number of things, some significant event you have before you. And, you know, eventually you work, and you work, and you work, and finally, finally, it comes to fruition. And for this one shining, yet brief and fleeting moment, you are very excited about it, only to very quickly discover that, that you are experiencing this sinking feeling in your stomach. I remember whenever I was preparing to graduate from seminary, I was extremely excited and motivated to get that goal done. Um, In fact, every week um, I would come into my office and you'll see up on the screen what I had going on in the corner of my board. I was working down the number of weeks and then eventually counting down the days. And the way that it worked was my friend Megan would come into my office on Monday mornings. We would change the number together and we would celebrate We did that all the way down to zero, of course. We finally got there to the number we've been hoping and waiting and watching for. And I was so thrilled. You know, I wore the cap and gown. I walked across the stage. They gave me my diploma. And I have to say quotation marks because it's just that empty shell. And they like tell you it's going to come in the mail. (laughs) But, you know, I didn't let that rain in my parade. We went and we ate this delicious dinner and went home. And I was just like basking in the glory of the. This moment. But then like the next day, I found myself just like extremely anxious. Every time I would find myself still and silent and all by myself, I would be like frantic. Like, shouldn't I be reading something right now? Like, what should I have going on? You know? And then when I'd go to sleep at night, I'd have these nightmares. Like, oh, there was this one class you forgot to take, or you never turned in that final or took that last test. Anybody else ever experienced this? Can I get a witness, please? Okay, yes. So as I finished seminary, I was asking that, that question. Now what? And there's actually like a psychological, physiological reason that we experience this sinking feeling in our gut. <laughs> it's been given different names by experts. Um, and, and a couple of them are these. That, you know, Some have called it post-achievement depression. Um, Or another, another less technical, but I think very descriptive term is a success hangover, you know? It makes sense because you see, here's how it works. Whenever you and I are working toward a goal, we have this hormone that is released in our body and it's called dopamine and it makes us very happy and very motivated. It's a delightful hormone. And every time we like hit this milestone on our way to our big goal, guess what? We get another hit of this hormone. And so we keep on moving forward because we like this feeling, right? However, at some point we have to finally reach that goal. We accomplish it. But here's the problem. The hit stop there, right? And so it becomes harder for us biochemically to experience joy. In fact, sometimes as we're moving toward our goal and it becomes more of a sure thing, like we're actually gonna do this, we kind of know that in our minds, the dopamine can begin to drop even beforehand, causing us to experience kind of this this letdown rather than feeling excited when we actually get there. We get this so-called success hangover because again, there is something psychologically and physiologically going on inside us. But there's also this, philosophical struggle that ensues within us as well because think about it as long as we have that goal out in front of us we have a purpose right we have a target that we are moving toward it has told us what we need to be doing with our lives it has told us that 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 we have something in front of us that matters and by extension that we matter But when that goal is checked off, then there's suddenly this void that is there that causes us to just launch into these cascade of questions. Who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? Do I matter? And do I bring value to the world? What is my purpose? Or back to that original question I posed. Now what? In Acts chapter 1, we find the disciples wrestling with this very experience and asking this question. Jesus, the person that they have been following around for the past three years. Jesus, the one they have left everything for and called their rabbi. Jesus, the one that they've so closely followed behind that they have been literally covered in his dust. This Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, leaving them alone without his physical presence. And so they're trying to figure it out. Now what? They, they've been following him and had this purpose for their lives, this purpose that mattered, by extension, meant they mattered. But what happens now when he's gone? And so they ask him, they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? The disciples, they still have in mind that Jesus is going to to bring about this earthly geopolitical kingdom here on earth. They're waiting for Jesus still to overthrow Rome, ascend to a man-made throne, and then to reestablish the kingdom of Israel of old. After being a part of Jesus's inner circle and kind of getting in on the ground floor, I'll tell you what they're probably thinking when they're asking Jesus and themselves, what's next? You know, now What? They're probably hoping they're going to get a nice high position in his administration. But Jesus has something so much bigger in mind than one nation conquering another nation. When Jesus ascends into heaven, yes, it will essentially be his coronation as a king. He will indeed ascend to take his seat on a throne, but not just over the nation of Israel, but over all of heaven and all of earth. And from there, he plans to continue what he already got started through his ministry, which is bringing his heavenly kingdom with all its hope and healing possibilities and promises right here on earth. And so Acts tells us that the Jesus said to them, like, it's not for you to know the times and dates that the father is set aside by his own authority. And this is verse 8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus' disciples, they were ready to be warriors for Jesus to establish this earthly kingdom. But Jesus calls them to be his witnesses instead. Witnesses. I just want to kind of pause here to acknowledge that that word witness can, can mean a lot of different things to us as we've, um, perhaps been followers of Jesus or not part of the the Christian tradition for long. It can, it can just have lots of, of meanings. Um, for some of us, it might carry a lot of baggage with it. Honestly, I know in my own religious experience that being a witness once meant just walking up to complete strangers and asking them if they knew Jesus It meant um, that you you told people like they needed to take these very specific steps and to watch out if they don't because they might end up down there. It has meant not giving someone hungry a sack lunch or someone who is cold a place to sleep until they have first listened to a gospel presentation. It has often looked like pressuring someone to make a decision to follow Jesus with a whole lot of words. However, the word for witness here in Acts and throughout all of the Bible is so much bigger and so much more powerful than that. The Greek word for witness is is the word "martyr," which is actually the word from which we get the word martyr. It probably sounds very familiar, right? Martyr. The word we use to describe someone who has given their very lives away for Jesus. That's a witness. Being a witness is something we do with both our words and our actions. It is something that is holistic and wholehearted. It is about us being so excited about the ways that we see Jesus at work in us and around us that we are always on the lookout for how he is bringing heaven right here on earth so that we can point it out and participate in it. Jesus' vision was that there would be a community of people empowered by the Holy Spirit that would anticipate And notice, name, and then join his salvation as it breaks forth in our world. And so over the next couple weeks, we are going to explore this purpose that Jesus has given all of us. To be his witness. By focusing in on those four key actions of a witness. We're going to talk about how we anticipate, how we notice, how we name, and how we join. But what I want to do today is just kind of give us a big picture of all of those things and what it looks like to be a witness. And so first of all, witnesses anticipate God's goodness. In Acts chapter 1, what Jesus tells the disciples to do is to go to Jerusalem and to get right to work or get busy doing something or bring his kingdom right now through their own power and strength. No, he doesn't say any of those things. What he says is he go, says, go to Jerusalem and wait. He doesn't tell them to just jump in and get busy doing whatever might maybe perhaps could be what he is up to in our world. Rather, he tells them to stay alert. He tells them to keep their eyes and their hearts and their attitudes open so they can catch what he is doing in that moment. And also so that they won't become disillusioned or, or uh, discouraged or disconnected by what they're seeing in the world around them. And I think this is a very important distinction because again, like my experience of what it meant to be a witness always kind of rested on this idea that, that it's all on us as followers of Jesus to bring about transformation in our world. Like we need to do that. God needs us to do this for him. However, the truth is, As a witness, our role is to trust that God in his goodness is already at work transforming the people and the world around us. He is the only one who can do it, but he calls us to be the people that expect him to show up and to do what only he can do in our midst. You know, it's so easy for us to get very distracted and to get hyper-focused on the negative and the broken parts of our worlds and the things that are not going well. And it's, as a result, easy for us to have anxious hearts that are filled with fear. But Jesus has called us to be this pocket of people on the planet that have hearts of peace because we stay expectant. Witnesses of Jesus anticipate God's goodness. And so let me ask you today, what are you expecting these days? Witnesses also notice God's presence. We not only expect it, but we know it when we see it. And I think that this is a big reason that Jesus um, gave his disciples and gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about sending the the paraclete to us, a word that's sometimes translated to be our helper or um, our advocate or even our comforter. But if you break that word down, here's what it means. Para means with or, or closely beside. And then kaleo means to make a call. And when you put those two things together, here's what you get. In a legal sense, this word was used to mean this. It means someone who makes the right call because they are close enough to the situation. Someone who makes the right call because they are close enough to the situation. And so think about that. The Holy Spirit helps us make the right call about where God is present because he is close enough to the situation. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is God himself, right? He guides us to recognize his own presence. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to do that, to help us see where God is active and at work, the more we allow him to to open our eyes to that, the more we start to see how he's doing that all around us all the time. Uh, It's what I like to um, call the new car effect. Have you experienced this? You go to the car lot and you pick out this beautiful car, and it's the most unique car you've ever seen. No one else in all of Bowling Green owns one, right? And then as soon as you roll off the lot, you start to see the car every place, right? Like everyone in town has this car, but it's because now you become aware that this car exists and you know to look for it. And so all of a sudden you see it everywhere and you can pick it out in a crowd. In a similar way, witnesses, they notice God's presence. They know it when they see it. And so let me ask you, what are you looking for these days? In addition, witnesses name God's activity. Um, Not only do they see it and look for it, but they tell other people about it. Last week, we had people from our congregation stand before us and tell us their stories. And as they stood before you, they were being witnesses. In that moment, they were pointing to the places where they had seen Jesus show up in their lives and bring them new life. It's a similar practice that we ask our small groups to do when they're together, to point out those places where they see God showing up. And it's something that I do with small groups, even when, when I'm with other clergy people. When we get it together, we call it glory sightings. It sounds very spiritual, right? We have to give it some Silly name, but glory sightings, and we all go around the circle and we we share the places where we see God showing up. Um, this past Thursday, I had to go to a meeting at the conference office up in Louisville, and on the way there, I knew that they were going to ask me this question. They were going to ask me where I saw God showing up, and so it caused me to stop and to think all the way there about all those different places where I could see God in His goodness, being who He is, and doing what He does. It's an important practice. You know, it's important for us to get intentional about this because it helps us to anticipate and then to notice so that we can name. And it's especially important for us to cultivate this practice because it is so tempting for us to only retell and rehearse the bad stuff, right? The things that haven't gone right, the hard things that have made us mad or disappointed us. But naming God's activity helps us to shift our focus And it helps us to do what the psalmist says in Psalm 34. He says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glorify in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Witnesses name God's activity. And so let me ask you, what are you talking about these days? Finally, witnesses join God's salvation. We get to participate in the hope and the healing, the possibilities and promises, the transformation that God is bringing about in our world. I came across a story recently that kind of took me by surprise, that that showed um, and spoke very powerfully to me about how, how to be a witness. You know, it's a story of someone who, who was anticipating, who noticed, who named, and then who joined. Um, but... It came up in a book about running, of all things. <laughs> I'd picked up this book because I was like, okay, I need some tips on how I can run better and I need to be inspired to not quit. And so I pick up the book, I start reading it, and all of a sudden I'm getting this, this story that's giving me tips and inspiring me to be a witness for Jesus. It's a story of Madeline Manning Milms, I don't know if you've heard of her before, um, but Madeline is a three-time Olympian. Um, she was once the rec- a world record holder in the 800 meters distance, and she is the proud owner of a Go medal from the 1968, I think, yeah, 1968 um, 800 meter race at the Olympics. So that's just a few of the things that she accomplished. Um, but to earn that Go medal, she had to race against one of her fiercest competitors, A woman named Vera Nikolic, who is from Yugoslavia, which is now Serbia. Um, But this wasn't the first time that, that they had met. They had raced each other before, okay? In fact, a year before the race in Mexico City at the 1968 Olympics, a year before that, these two women had met up in a race. And as they're racing along, Madeline starts to go past Vera. She's making her move to make her dash to the finish line. And you won't believe what happened, but Vera decides to elbow uh, Madeline and knock her into the infield. Like she completely falls down. But Madeline is pretty relentless. So she jumps up, she takes off, she runs Vera down, and then she leans across the finish line to win the whole race. It was pretty remarkable, right? Um, Vera was not happy about this at all, and so whenever they went to put a silver medal around her neck, she refused. She would not let them do it. She held the medal in her hands, and whenever they announced that Madeline was the most outstanding female athlete at the meet, she took her silver medal and threw it into the stands before she walked off the track. It was a little dramatic, right? Just a little drama. And so it's safe to say when these ladies were going to meet again in the Olympics, that people had eyes on them. They wanted to see what was going to happen. And they all got their chance because they met up in the semifinals of the race in Mexico City. However, to everyone's shock, the race begins. Vera and Madeline both take off, but about 300 meters in, Vera steps off the track. She gives up. And if that was not shocking enough, she would shortly thereafter attempt suicide. Later it was found out, Madeline would learn that the dignitaries of Vera's country had been putting a whole lot of pressure on her. It was nearing the end of the games, they had not gotten a gold medal, and they pretty much said to her, you need to bring a gold medal back and nothing less. But the result was that Vera had a mental breakdown on the track during that race. Two days later, on the way to um, her race in the finals, Madeline, if we could put it, yep, Madeline's up there again. Madeline um, is walking to the finals. And you guys know how athletes are, right? Like before a big race, especially the Olympics, you're in what they call the zone, right? Like you're in the zone, you are focused, you're thinking about it, you're visualizing it. It's all that's on your mind. But as Madeline is walking to the finals, she sees Vera out of the corner of her eye. She's standing over by the dormitories and she looks completely lifeless. And so in that moment, Madeline had a decision, like she could keep walking on to the finals or she could go and check on Vera. And she chooses in that moment to walk over to Vera, not even sure that Vera would understand a single word she was about to say, like she had no idea if she spoke English, but she kept calling her name at first and Vera just looked back at Madeline with these hollow eyes. But Madeline wouldn't give up. She kept calling her name. And eventually, when Vera wouldn't respond, Madeline grabbed her by the shoulders and she said, you're young. Go back and start over again. Don't give up. And still, there was no response from Vera. And so Madeline looked her in the eye and this is what she said. She says, I don't know if you understand me or not, but God created you one of the greatest athletes in the world. And that gift belongs to him. Go back home, get some rest, and start all over again. She said at that point, tears started to roll out of Vera's eyes, and Madeline kind of embraced her, and then she walked off to the Olympic final where she won the gold medal. But that's not even the most remarkable part of the story. <laughs> because a year later, at a meet, a man called to Madeline, and uh, when she turned around, she recognized that it was Vera's coach. And so she asked, like, how's Vera doing? And he just started to weep. He said, after we left Mexico City, we checked her into a mental institution. I go every single day to talk with her, but she did not say a single word until one month ago. He said, I was just talking and talking, and suddenly she interrupted me like a light bulb had gone off. And she said, Coach, Madeline came over as she was on her way to the finals. He said, she realized you were on the way to the finals and you still came back for her. That's the only thing that started her talking again, he said. And at that moment, Madeline heard someone calling her name and she turned around and there's Vera. (laughs) Vera came running over and she said, I found God. And Madeline said, I could see life in her eyes. This is what Madeline said about that experience. She said, from that moment on, it hit me. This is not about the Olympic Games. That's the icing on the cake. This is not about me winning or my times or fame or the medal. This is about me being in the right place at the right time with the words of life for someone who is dying. And the reality of my purpose came into full perspective. Even while you're doing what you are doing, there is a higher purpose. There is so much more about what you are and who you are and why God has you there. Madeline answered the call to be a witness. And throughout the rest of her career, she made the most of every opportunity to join in, in what God was doing in the lives of the people around her. Through all like the ups and all the downs of her career, she always knew that she had this higher purpose. And so the next time you find yourself asking, what's next? The next time you find yourself wrestling with what is my purpose, the next time you get that sinking feeling because you're not sure what you should be doing or if it will matter at all, remember that no matter what, no matter what you are doing or where it's at, whether it is in a job or at home or in retirement, no matter if you have these goals in progress or already completed, no matter, no matter uh, where you find yourself in that moment, you can know that you have this higher vocation. You can know that you have been called to be a witness for Jesus who anticipates, who notices, and who names um, and joins in what God is doing in the world. Every time we come to this table, we remember this, this purpose, this calling that Jesus has placed on our lives. When we come to eat of the bread and drink of the juice, um, I pray a certain prayer that you may have begun to memorize yourself because we pray it every single time, but this is what I pray. I pray for God to pour out his Holy Spirit, just like it says in Acts chapter 1a that God would do and that he has done. And why? To make this to be the body and blood of Christ. And why? So that we could be the body of Christ in the world. So that we can go to be his witnesses. And so as you come today and eat of the bread and drink of the juice, may you take it as an opportunity to once again say yes to the purpose of being a witness for Jesus. As those who are assisting me this morning come forward at this time, let me pray for us. Lord God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts a bread and cup. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until that day when Christ returns in final victory and we feast together at his heavenly banquet. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.